This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Let's get our daily check on COVID. Dr. Uh, Jacob Beecraft is a biologist. He's CEO and co-founder of the privately held biopharma company Strand Therapeutics, and he joins us on the phone in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jake, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you doing? Hi, Tim and Carol. It's good to be here. Um, I'm doing fantastic. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, it, is a, it, is a, it is a challenging but a, uh, a rewarding time to be in the biotech sector. Why so? And tell us specifically about the work that you guys are doing, because you're in this whole world of something that we've all become uh, not quite an expert on, but we know a lot more, and that is messenger RNA. Yeah, I, so myself as a scientist, I did my PhD at MIT focused on messenger RNA therapeutics going back to, uh, to 2013. Um, and really, even back then, we were we were sitting around talking about the potential of what this technology could do. Um, luckily, some some visionary people um, uh, at DARPA back then, Dan Wattendorf actually um, at at uh, the DoD's research division, DARPA, um, chose to start backing companies and uh, research groups like my own um, to begin researching this mRNA uh, technology as a as a therapeutic. Um, that funded a lot of Moderna's work. Um, that funded work that ended up going into BioNTech, and that funded the work that uh, ended up ultimately uh, becoming my company, Strand Therapeutics. Um, and so it's. It's a rewarding time, really, to see, uh, I think, the power of biotech innovation. I think the power of this technology that uh, those of us who are champions of this, uh, of this field have been promising for a long time. Um, and and it, you know, it, it's rewarding to, uh, in, a, in a year that has been just absolutely awful, uh, um, yeah. I, I think it's, it's a silver lining to see um, just what can happen when private industry, along with the public uh, and public funding, can come right. together. Uh, and deploy these therapeutics. Hey, Jacob, can you talk a little bit about what mRNA does to the human body? Because I think there has been a lot of questions about it because it's it's perceived as being a new technology, at least for use in humans, despite the fact that it has been being researched for years. Absolutely. So the, the first thing to, to say is that mRNA is, uh, is a molecule that our bodies use all, all the time. Um, so inside of your nucleus is your is where your genome is kept, and that has, that's all made of DNA. Um, and so on your genome, you have all of these genes, and those genes code for proteins. And protein is really what life is. It's what makes up the substance of what we are, of what every organism is. And in order for the DNA genes to get out and become proteins out in your body, they have to be sent on, on this information molecule, um, and, and that's what messenger RNA is. And so every day your body is turning on genes um, by creating messenger RNA from the DNA and using those messages to, to actually actuate themselves. What messenger RNA therapeutics are, are just creating that same messenger RNA um, and, and using it to deliver different sorts of, uh, of genes that are only temporary, right? This isn't, this isn't genome modification. This actually never touches any part of your uh, of your DNA whatsoever, but you can you can use these instructions, these messenger RNA instructions, to temporarily uh, deliver instructions into the body, and that could be used to create a vaccine, right? That could be used to help your body train up 
to, to learn what a virus might look like without actually delivering the virus into the body. And uh, in the broader field of messenger RNA therapeutics, what my company, Strand, has been focused on is uh, furthering that technology for the use in fighting cancer, uh, fighting rare diseases, fighting autoimmune diseases. Um, all of that can be augmented in this uh, much safer platform than, than genome engineering as well. So what you're saying is we're not touching the DNA helix or double helix. We're not doing <laughs> playing around with that. But what is it? And unfortunately, you'll have to come back and talk some more because this is stuff we love to talk about. But in a minute or so, what is it that we don't know about messenger RNA that maybe puts people still on edge a little bit? And again, just got about 50 seconds. I, I think... New technology is, is always uh, is always can can be a little startling to, to see at first, especially when it's when it's run out, um, you know, fairly fast in the public eye. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that we have a lot left to learn about um, messenger RNA itself. Um, it, it's really, I think, right now uh, about getting vaccines in the arms of people to make sure that we're not rolling the dice on, you know, what are the long term effects of a COVID infection? I think that's a much more kind of serious thing um, that we need to protect ourselves against by getting these vaccines out and, and really, you know, continuing to invest in technology like this so we can be protected from future, you know, uh, pandemic outbreaks. Right, or cancer. And I know that's something we barely scratched the surface. So I hope you'll come back so we can continue this conversation. We've been talking with Dr. Jacob B. Kraft. He is CEO and co-founder of Strand Therapeutics with us on the phone in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. It is without a doubt the financial story of the week. It will turn out to be one of the stories of the year about the private investment firm that continues to be at the center of one of the biggest margin calls of all time. And a member of our Bloomberg News team that broke the story is Bloomberg News finance reporter Srinath Arajan. He's with us on the phone in New York City reporting for Business Week along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He's on the Axis line in Brooklyn. Joel, this is a story that we are continually finding out more and more kind of every hour about it. And one of the angles that Shree is dealing with is kind of what was happening at, you know, some of the big banks like Credit Suisse. Like you had to wonder last week, what were the phone calls and conversations that were going on among the big Wall Street banks? Yeah, I think we've just all been um, in awe of this story. And, you know, we, we first saw it start to trickle out Friday. And then over the weekend, Bloomberg News was just all over it. Um, and, and the most surprising part that has come from Sri's latest reporting today that I saw was that the banks were all talking about this this time last week. So, so Sri, kind of take us inside those conversations. Like, how did they begin and, and how, did they, uh, how did they go? No, Joe, you're absolutely right. Uh, for all of us in the outside, the news really started trickling out mid to late Friday over the weekend and, of course, uh, through the first days of this week. But for those who've been dealing with Bill Huang and his family office, they were starting to get worried and alarmed by the middle of the week as some of his uh, big positions were moving in the other direction. And very soon, by the middle of the week, the banks did realize they had a big problem on their hands. The risk department that a number of Wall Street banks, European banks and even Japanese banks were starting to get worried. So they all decided to get together on a hastily arranged call that included some of the top lawyers from all of these firms, also included Bill Huang to find a solution to figure out how to untie and unwind these positions in a tidy manner. From our reporting, we understand that Credit Suisse, in fact, was the one that was pushing for this idea of a standstill agreement, asking everyone to cool down, back off for a little bit, let's see how the price action moves, and look at it again 
on Monday because they did not want to see an immediate forced liquidation. Well, they clearly reached no agreement. Um, they were all in it for themselves by Friday. It was clear because they'd all broken rank. And now, as we see the consequence of that action, we see the big U.S. bank, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, appear to have emerged from this largely unscathed, but that is not true for an MUFJ, which overnight told us that their losses could be about $300 million. Nomura, which says it has a $2 billion claim without actually saying what its actual hit could be from this. And Credit Suisse, which has still not provided a figure, but estimates on that are heading into multi-billion dollars. And that sort of starts to explain Credit Suisse's stance on that fateful call last Thursday. Shri, what, what could have been a tidier way to unwind this? You, you, you know, you said the banks were looking for a tidier way to do this, but, but how could these losses have been prevented when the stock started moving lower? No, Tim, you're absolutely right. So we're still trying to piece together that part of the puzzle, but uh, one possibility very well could be instead of the banks moving to safe collateral and force some sort of liquidation event, Perhaps the strategy was wait and see if the stock rebounds. Perhaps the strategy was asking some of the banks who had the potential to demand much more margin to give some sort of margin holiday. It isn't clear what the solution could have been, but what is clear is for at least some of those participants on the call, the idea that banks would move into the market by Friday and do a rapid fire sale of a number of these positions was going to be the worst case outcome. And that's what they're dealing with now. So Sri, what are the big unanswered questions that um, that remain? Well, in the now, the regulators, investors, and everyone on the outside is trying to make sure, is there more to come? Are we going to see more blocks, junky stock trades happening? Is there a systemic risk? Is the market largely insulated? But without a doubt, as we move past this into next week and beyond and the weeks and months ahead, the big question that will emerge from this saga and really the big focus point will likely be around this concept of unknown hidden leverage. How is it that someone could build such concentrated positions in some fairly prominent names? These are Chinese tech giants, U.S. media conglomerates, and yet no one knows about it. If you're in the cash equity market, if you build a position that is larger than 5%, there have to be regulatory filings. But it appears in this case, he was using uh, the swap lines with banks that allowed him to avoid having to make any listing of what these positions would be. So we are not aware of any such disclosure. There's no outside money. So he didn't even have the usual uh, disclosures about the size of the fund that we would get from every other hedge fund. Right. But clearly was a big, big player in the market and the estimates are gross exposure could have been greater than 50, 60 billion dollars. That seemed like a worry. That seems like an area where there will be demands for a lot more transparency. I just want to know who's the bankers or are there bankers on this call that just poured themselves a stiff one because uh, we just heard a drink being poured. <laughs> just going to say, yeah. 
Um, listen, this story is far from over, and I'm sure regulators, we know that they've been reaching out to the bank. So uh, incredible reporting by Sri, part of the team that broke this story and has been on it from the get-go. Sri Natarajan, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in New York City, along with Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn, right? It was a banker, right? Pouring a drink? Yeah, it has to be. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Top story in our minds today, Tim, no doubt about it, President Biden's infrastructure plan. Yeah, Chris Condon is Federal Reserve and U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Virginia. Chris, it's great to have you on the show. When we think about what the Biden administration wants to do with its next phase, right, after this COVID recovery package that was pushed through, for $1.9 trillion plan, what is the priority for the president? Well, Tim, I think there's two overarching motivations here. Number one, they want to bring up the longer-run rates of economic growth in the U.S., which have been historically quite disappointing for, for 10 or 20 years, you might say. Also, very much tied into this, is they want to engineer a more equal distribution of the benefits of that growth, uh, because we do see increasingly, over a number of decades, a greater concentration of wealth and income in this country at the higher echelons of that distribution. And, and the Democrats really would like to attack that. Well, and before we get into politics, Chris, let's, because this is something several, I would say, heads of the Federal Reserve have certainly had on their radar. You have, and like, listen, there's lots of statistics out there about the gaps in wealth and gaps in income. Um, You lay out a couple of statistics. Can you just kind of remind us of what they are that just kind of sets the scene of where we are and how bad it's got in terms of the inequities, certainly the financial inequities in our society? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, I I would premise that just a little bit by saying that there's all sorts of uh, disputes over various statistics that would use... You know, on more than that. But, you know, if you just look at basic um, distributions of income and net worth, here's a good example. The net worth of the top 10% of households in 1989, that was 9.5, excuse me, 9.4 times as much as the middle fifth. You know, if you divide everybody up by uh, 20 percentage points each, that's 9.4 times as much. That by 2007 grew to 13 times. And by 2017, 17 times, and that's before the pandemic hit. And that, of course, has fallen disproportionately on poor and middle-income people. The the rich saw financial assets really crater for a while, but they've bounced back uh, and more since then. So those multiples will will probably have grown even more since the onset of the pandemic. And that's a good example, I think. and that really goes back over 40 years. We've seen a deterioration of that kind, both in net worth and in average incomes uh, um, across the board. So, Chris, let's now get to the politics of this, because this is going to be very political. Even just the way the Democrats and Republicans talk differently about inequality and inequity, using terms like structural versus not structural. Uh, how does how does how do Democrats and Republicans come to some sort of solution? And, and right now, do they even see the same problems out there? Well, this is a really good question. No, they don't see the same problems. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, they do. First of all, we have to say that in the United States, compared to other developed economies, there is a much greater tolerance of inequality. 
Americans have in our fabric this idea that if you work harder, you're smarter, you invent something, and you make a zillion bucks, good for you. What Americans really have a problem with is an inequality of opportunity. So if a kid is smart but just can't get educational opportunities, work opportunities, because they come from a poor neighborhood and their schools are crappy, uh, their parents aren't connected, etc. If those things deepen the inequalities, that's something that most Americans have a serious problem with. Now, how do you address it? Economists that I spoke on both sides of the philosophical aisle agree that education and training absolutely deserve more resources and more attention um, so as to create that more equal set of opportunities. Um, but it's not just more, right, Chris? It's not just more of it, but <laughs> the right one that kind of opens the doors to opportunities, right? Well, this is the main, what makes it such a complex issue. You know, one economist said it's not just a matter of throwing money at it. These things are, you know, if they were easy to solve, they would have been solved decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are loads of theories about how we should go about Just one example. Uh, Biden wants to make community colleges tuition-free. Conservative economists say, hold on, you're getting it wrong here. You have to incentivize the colleges by tying the assistance to the outcomes. Are, they, are these kids getting degrees at community colleges? Are they getting jobs and good jobs? And the ones that do that better should get more assistance at schools, that is. Um, so that's just one example. Um, and then, of course, is the taxation issue. Massive disagreement about this. Conservatives believe that wealth is being demonized in the U.S. Um, and that it's kind of a cheap populist ploy to go after the rich and say they must be taxed more. Liberals will say, look, we've tried to, to allow corporations and wealthy people to keep more of their income under your theory that this would help the over-economy more by investing job-creating ventures, but it hasn't really quite worked out that way. Let's get them to pay more, of a greater share, and invest that in education, infrastructure, which the benefits of which is dispersed more widely, greater health care, which can improve the quality of the labor force, a lot of ideas. So, Again, as you say, Carol, huge philosophical differences on this, um, and we're not likely to see those differences just solved. We're going to see one side push through legislation. Hey, Chris, just in 15 seconds, is there a chance that Biden can do this with getting any Republican support, unlike what he did with the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, relief package? I do not believe so. No, not such a large package. If they broke up one piece here or there, like a pure surface transit infrastructure piece that could get maybe some Republican proposal uh, support, but uh, highly skeptical. Well, we're going to hear more from the president uh, on all of this starting tomorrow, at least we expect to. Hey, Chris Condon, thank you so much for breaking it down. He is Federal Reserve and U.S. economy reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Virginia. I'm a little bit bummed that this might not go through especially the infrastructure part. Yeah, like like Chris said, there's agreement on sort of what the problem is, just not on the way to attack it. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, just about nine and a half minutes, nine minutes, 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Let's get to it with Ira Rothberg, co-portfolio manager and managing member of Broad Run Investment Management. That is a sub-advisor to the Hennessy Focus Fund, which, by the way, uh, is up more than 13% so far this year, putting it into the 96th percentile, according to our data. And he joins us on the phone from Virginia. Ira, good to have you here on Bloomberg. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Carol? Do, doing okay, doing okay. Um why don't you start broad before we kind of dig a little bit into your market, into your uh, fund and, and its holdings. How do you see this market environment right now? This is an interesting uh, market environment. <laughs> there are certainly um, pockets of exuberance in the market, particularly in high growth and concept companies. It, it seems like in this low interest rate, low growth environment of the pandemic that investors are, are looking to find the next Amazon. They're looking to buy lottery tickets. Everybody's looking for the next trillion dollar market cap company. And as a consequence, you see people routinely paying uh, 30, 35 times sales for businesses with negative 20 or negative 30% EBITDA margin. And, uh, you know, at the same time, the the market overall is perfectly reasonably valued with the S&P 500 trading at about 22 times forward earnings and our portfolio trading at a discount, trading at about 17 times forward earnings, where we see uh, even better growth in the market. So, you know, we think it's possible to find really compelling investment opportunities um, in proven businesses uh, with long growth runways, um, just not in the hot names or hot sectors that you see talked about um, uh, on TV every day. Well, let's talk about some of those, Ira, because I know one of your picks is Restoration Hardware. Why are you seeing opportunity there? Sure. To, to understand Restoration Hardware, you really need to understand its chairman and CEO, Gary Friedman, who owns about 30% of the company. And uh, if you rewind the clock about 20 years, uh, Restoration hard- Hardware was uh, a nearly bankrupt company before um, Gary came in and turned things around. And today, you know, uh, RH is really the leading uh, luxury home furnishings brand in the United States. And we think over time it will become the leading brand globally. Um, they're really climbing the luxury mount- mount- mountain. You know, as I mentioned, 20 years ago, they had a, a um, they had a box of laundry detergent on the front of their catalog. And today, you know, if you walk into their New York uh, design gallery, 90,000 square feet, six levels, you know, a rooftop restaurant. Um, you know, it, it's quite an ex- a different experience. Um, and, you know, in 2020, sorry, in 2022, they're going to be expanding into England and into Paris and taking this successful concept globally. And so we think they're in the early innings. It's about a $3 billion, sorry, a company with about $3 billion of revenue today. We think over time they can eclipse $25 billion of revenue. So, um, very, very exciting concept with a, a talented management team. It's a very different company. You know, if you go back, you're absolutely right. Very, very different company. Uh, and you do think, obviously, playing into that luxury space, and, and especially over the last year, we're seeing everybody just kind of ramp up their plans for their home. They're just kind of tapping into something. And so that globally means a lot of growth for them. Sure. I mean, um, existing home turnover is very strong right now. Housing demand is very strong, um, particularly in million-dollar-plus homes, which mm. You know, their target market, their their target customer has north of $250,000 of household income. You know, the rule of thumb is people spend about 10% of their home's purchase price on furniture. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're buying a $5 million home, a $2.5 million home, that's a lot of business for restoration hardware. And people have been moving out of cities, and, and, and there's been a robust second home market in you know, the suburbs and, and beach locations. 
and that all uh, has been very good for them. But, you know, I, I think what's most important here is that they've built this luxury brand and it's continuing to grow. They're going to invest $105 million and, and build out really a, um, you know, a whole suite of solutions in the Aspen, Colorado market. They'll have an RH guest house, which is a little bit more private than a hotel concept. They'll have their traditional furniture um, design gallery. They're going to have spas and, and a restaurant. And, you know, all this makes the brand even more aspirational. Right. And that gives them pricing power. So, again, they're in the early innings here. Love me some English wingback chairs, just going to say. <laughs> if you ever walk in one of these galleries, it's just like, can I just move in? Can I just move in? <laughs> hey, CarMax is another one that you like. KMX is the ticker. What's what's your take on there? We've only got about 40 seconds. Oh, sure. Which is And so, the stock's up 44%, so it's already had quite a run. They, uh, they revolutionized the car buying experience about uh, you know, 25 years ago with the no-haggle big-box format, and they're about to revolutionize it again with their omni-channel concept, which has been rolled out nationally. And you know, they're starting to put advertising dollars you know, really behind it, where um, you, know, you can buy a car from the, the comfort of your living room sofa, you can arrange for your trade-in, you can arrange uh, financing, and they're really the only one, uh, ones that will allow you to do as much or as little of the transaction uh, on store, uh, in store, or uh, online, if you'd like. And um, we think that this is going to uh, afford them tremendous market share gains. It, there'll be uh, cost efficiencies as well. Right. And it trades at a reasonable multiple, about 20 times Ford F. So you only have to leave, actually, to go drive the car, <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> to drive to Restoration Hardware. <laughs> exactly. And pick up one of those English wingback chairs. <laughs> All right, Ira, thank you so much. Ira Rothberg, he's Portfolio Manager of Red Hennessy Funds on the phone in Virginia. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.